Hi, I'm Jacqueline. And I'm Courtney. And this is Caffeinated Crimes. Welcome back. Um, for us, we just recorded like less than 12 hours ago. So, But for you, it's a whole new week. So welcome back again. Yeah, we're trying to double up. I'm going to be on vacation, but don't come at me. I'm going to be sitting in a, like, a lake house, not going anywhere, <laughs> doing anything. So don't yell at me for going on vacation. But it's pretty much going to be a staycation that's not your home location. <laughs> yeah. So that's what we're going to be doing. So we're trying to double up because yes. probably cannot record in that lake house without hearing everything. So here yes. we are. So we're just going to do a couple of extra episodes and so that way you guys don't have to miss a week yet. So yeah, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> hopefully you don't hear too much background from the child that's screaming at Courtney's apartment that we don't know what's happening. Yeah, so I know my downstairs neighbor has kids, and I've heard her scream a lot. She loves to scream at her boyfriend. She loves to. Always at like 11 p.m. She just loves to scream at her boyfriend. Yes. And you can hear it very clearly. And then last night, as soon as we started recording, I just hear this child just like wailing, like screaming at the top of its lungs. It didn't, it eventually stopped, thankfully, but it was seriously, I was like, Jacqueline, I cannot add any commentary <laughs> in your parts because this child is screaming its head off. And Jacqueline could hear it, like, through my microphones, too. Yes. Like, <laughs> yes, it was quite loud. So we don't have a whole lot else to catch up on since, like we said, we just recorded less than 12 hours ago. Um, but we do have a lot of information for today's episode, so it should still be a pretty good length for you guys. With trying to keep a few lighter episodes, we wanted to go with a survival story. Um, so today we're going to do the incredible kidnapping and survival of Elizabeth Smart. So a lot of our information came from a documentary um, called Elizabeth Smart Autobiography. Like I think autobiography is the series, mm -hmm. and so people like come on and tell their stories. Um, but there is a two-part um, documentary on... Amazon Prime, that's really good, as well as Elizabeth's own book called My Story, and we also had a couple of articles from ABC News, the Chicago Tribune, NBC News, and a um, ThoughtCo article. So on June 5th, 2002, every parent's worst nightmare came to life when 14-year-old Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped from her bedroom while her whole family slept in Salt Lake City, Utah. The whole country was captivated by her story and searched for her for nine months until she was found. And I know Courtney and I personally both remember this, like, as it was happening. Like, we remember hearing about it in the news and, you know, being so terrified that, like, this girl was just taken from her bedroom, the place that you're supposed to feel so safe. So I know that, especially for people our age, they probably have, like, a personal connection to this case that, like, it sticks out in their mind, you know? Yeah, it was, like, terrifying to me because... We were kind of talking about this, like, last week, where I was like, you know, you hear, like, these stories, and you're like, okay, like, she was abducted at a park, I just won't go to a park, I won't be, you know, I'll, this person was this, and so you can kind of, like, disassociate or be like, okay, well, that wouldn't happen to me, like, whatever, yeah. but this, it's like you're sleeping in your bed, like, with your family in the house, and you're kidnapped, like, it's terrifying. It is so terrifying. So, Elizabeth Smart was born on November 3rd, 1987, to Edward and Lois Smart. Um, so, at the time she was born, she had one older brother and would eventually have three more younger brothers and a younger sister. 
Her family was deeply religious, and they were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, Elizabeth was an accomplished harpist at a young age. She was also very into running and riding horses and maintained a 4.0 GPA at school. And at 14 years old, Elizabeth had never worn makeup, had never kissed a boy. She describes her favorite things at that age as talking to her mom and jumping on the trampoline with her best friend, which are just like the purest activities that a 14-year-old can enjoy. Yeah. Um... In November of 2001, Elizabeth had been shopping in downtown Salt Lake City with her mom and siblings. They made eye contact with a man who appeared to be homeless standing on the side of the road. Her mom would later say, quote, I thought he was a man down on his luck. Maybe he just lost his job. He looked young enough that maybe he had a family and people he was responsible for. So she gave him $5 and her husband's phone number so that he could help him find some work. So this man was Brian David Mitchell, and he decided in that moment that Elizabeth was to be his next wife. So Brian David Mitchell was born on October 18, 1953 in Salt Lake City to Irene and Cheryl Mitchell. He was the third of six children. Um, Cheryl was a social worker and Irene was a teacher. So both of them were vegetarians who raised their kids on whole wheat bread and steamed vegetables. And my only thought was like, just imagine when he grew up and finally had a hamburger or even a piece of, like, unseasoned chicken and was like, this is so good. What is this protein? This is delicious. Because, yeah, there's, like, no protein in that diet. I no. Mean, That's come a, on now. Probably going to be a little uh, malnourished there. So the family was described by neighbors as kind of odd but, like, decent people. Um, Brian seemed to be a normal kid. He was involved in Cub Scouts and Little League. He was a latchkey kid, so he kind of was on his own some. Irene seemed to be a caring mother, but his dad, Cheryl, had some odd ideas on child rearing. Like, when Brian was eight, Cheryl attempted to teach him about sex using sexually explicit books in a medical journal, and he would also leave sexually oriented books laying around the house for Brian to find. And... Once when Brian was 12, Cheryl tried to teach him a lesson by dropping him off in an unfamiliar part of town and telling him to find his way home. And as Brian got older, he got more argumentative with his parents and just kind of retreated into his own world of isolation. And then at age 16, Brian exposed himself to a child, um, so he was sent to juvenile hall for this. And basically the stigma of this crime just really alienated him from his peers. And he just started constantly arguing with his mom, and then he decided to move in with his grandmother. And so soon after that, he ended up dropping out of school and started doing drugs and drinking. At age 19, Brian left Utah. We're not quite sure where he went, Um, but he did marry 16-year-old Karen Miner after discovering that she was pregnant. And they had two children together in the two years that they were together. So it wasn't really a great relationship, and when it ended, Brian got custody of both kids because of Karen's, quote, infidelities and drug abuse. And Karen remarried and regained custody, but Brian took the children to New Hampshire to prevent them from returning to their mother. Which I also thought was weird about her, like, drug abuse when clearly he was, like, on drugs too. Like, he dropped out of school and started doing drugs and drinking and only married her because she was pregnant. Like, clearly he's not an upstanding guy either, but... And especially in, this was like the late 1970s at this point, for a single dad to get custody is just unheard of. And for it to be this single dad is just absurd. Um, 
1980, Brian's life changed pretty dramatically after his brother-in-law came back from a mission and he kind of talked with him and he decided he wanted to kind of turn his life around. Um, so he quit using drugs and alcohol and he became active in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, so the LDS Church. And in 1981, he married his second wife, Debbie. So Debbie already had three kids from a previous marriage, and they quickly had two more children together. So now they have seven children between the two of them. Um, so they did start having marital problems soon after. Debbie said that Brian would become aggressive, and he started controlling her and becoming abusive. He would tell her what to wear, what to eat, just really would try to frighten her. And he apparently had a very strong fascination with Satan. And Debbie said that it concerned her that he was, quote, getting to know his enemy, is how he put it. Um, so Brian filed for divorce in 1984, claiming that Debbie was violent and cruel to his children and was turning them against him. So a year after their separation, Debbie called authorities to report her fear that Brian had sexually abused their three-year-old son. Um, so a caseworker couldn't really substantiate this abuse, um, but did recommend that visits with him be supervised. And within the same year, Debbie's daughter accused Brian of sexually abusing her for four years. So Debbie did report the abuse to the LDS leaders, but they advised her to drop it. And on the very same day that Brian and Debbie divorced, he married Wanda Barzi. Um, Wanda was a 40-year-old divorcee with six kids who she left with her ex-husband when she moved out. Um, Wanda's family accepted Brian, even though they found him kind of strange, and some of her children moved in with them, but they found the home to be very weird and dangerous because of Brian's odd behavior. Um, outsiders saw them as just a normal, hardworking Mormon couple. Brian worked as a die cutter, so cutting like various shapes out of cardboard, paper, fabric, um, was very active in the church, but he did have a lot of anger and rage, a lot of which was taken out on Wanda. Um, so he did become extremely religious, and his portrayal of Satan during temple rituals was just, like, too much, and the elders eventually asked him to tone it down. So one night, Brian woke up one of Wanda's sons, saying that he had spoken to angels. And so after this, all of Wanda's children left the house because of the conditions there. And trigger warning for animal and child abuse here. The youngest daughter, Lurie Gaylor, tells a story about how one night for dinner, her mother was serving the food and said they were eating chicken. Um, and she said that Wanda and Brian were kind of picking at their meals, but that her mom was just like smiling the whole time. So the next morning, Lurie went to go pet her rabbit, Peaches, and asked her mother where it was. And her mother said, you had it last night for dinner. Yeah, that's horrible. So horrible. Like, what has to be wrong with you to serve your child's pet rabbit to her for dinner. What? And that's the thing, too, is, like, she said that she was, like, what is this? Like, what's for dinner? And they're, like, chicken. It's chicken. Mm-hmm. Chicken. Yeah. And then it's, like, what? And, like, smiling the whole time. Like, she was clearly enjoying it. Like, yeah, watching like, her daughter. Yeah, like, it was something like, fun. Yeah. Um, so, Lurie just recalls, like, a horrible childhood that she was just constantly neglected. She would hang out with the dog just for affection and her oldest brother, Derek Thompson, ended up writing a book about his childhood called Raised by Wolves, talking about how he would live outside just to escape the physical abuse in the house. Um, and he would use a pellet gun to shoot birds and eat them to avoid going into the house. 
And one of their sisters, Andrea, remembers these, like, brainwashing systems. Like, they would just sit in a room, and they would just, like, drill into them, like, if you weren't a part of this family, then this family would be fine. So, Lurie said all the children either left or were kicked out of the house by the age of 13 or 14. Um, and Lurie herself left after the rabbit incident, which, I mean, same. Yeah. Um, that was just, like, the final straw for her after years of abuse. And while she was living there, she had only been allowed to watch National Geographic on TV and was forced to kneel and pray for two to four hours a day. And she also tells a story of one disturbing prayer session where she was kneeling and her mom was praying and Brian nudged her and pulled out photos of nude women and laid them on the bed. So she believes that Wanda and Brian were like trying to get her to participate with them that day in sexual activities. And she also recalls a favorite toy of hers that Wanda threw away just for the pleasure of seeing her daughter disappointed that it was gone. And Wanda's daughter, Rhonda, was the closest to her and still keeps in touch by mail. And Wanda said in a letter that all of her children were, quote, precious to her. And when asked about punishment, Andrea said, I don't think she should see the light of day again. So Andrea would later go on the Oprah show and say that the media had portrayed her mother as being a victim of Brian David Mitchell, and so she really wanted to come on the show to expose her mom for the kind of monster that she actually was and be like, no, like she wasn't a victim as well. She wasn't under his spell. Like she actively participated in everything that we're going to get into in a minute. Yeah, like there was abuse going on probably even before Brian came around, but especially while they were living together, like, she wasn't just some, like, innocent woman. So they all wanted to, like, just go out and just be like, listen, no, she's crappy. She's horrible. Like, we're her own children, and we're like, please don't ever let her see the light of day again. Yeah, exactly. So by the 1990s, Brian had changed his name to Emmanuel and discontinued his association with the church and presented himself as a prophet of God whose beliefs were etched by his prophetic visions. Um, So the couple did return to Salt Lake City where Brian started growing his hair out and wearing robes so he could look like Jesus. And Wanda called herself God Adorneth and stayed with him as his devoted disciple. And so at this point, basically everyone else in their life just kind of stopped talking to them and cut ties. So they're pretty much alone now. So, if you remember from a few minutes ago, when Elizabeth's mom saw this man who looked down on his luck, she gave him some money, and she gave him her husband's phone number, and she's like, hey, I'm sure that my husband can help you find some work. Um, So, as Brian had decided that Elizabeth was going to be his second wife, he's like, yep, I'm going to take you up on that. So, he did call Elizabeth's dad, and he offered him a couple of jobs to rake the leaves and repair the roof at their house. Um, So he took those jobs so that he could be close to Elizabeth and also so he could learn the layout of the house so he could find where Elizabeth slept. So then he started preparing to bring his second wife home. So he purchased steel cables, bolts, padlocks, and bolt cutters. He moved the camp that him and Wanda were living in further up the mountain so that they wouldn't be as visible. Um, So the camp that they lived in was only a few miles from Elizabeth's house, like up at the top of a mountain. So they moved it even further so that way no one's going to be able to see them. So the night that he planned to kidnap Elizabeth, he dressed all in black and he knew that he would have to leave the camp after dark, hike down to Elizabeth's house, force her to hike back up with him before the sun came up. So he's like, I'm in a hurry. Like I have to make sure and get this done in time. Um, And this I just thought was so sad. So Elizabeth's grandfather had passed away recently and his funeral was the day before she was kidnapped. Um, So, like, her poor parents are just dealing with burying her mom's father, and then the next day, 
her daughter gets kidnapped. And earlier in the evening, the day Elizabeth was kidnapped, she had an event at school where she would receive some awards for the end of the year, and she had played her harp there. So around 2 a.m. on June 5th, 2002, Brian arrived at the house and searched to see if any doors or windows were left open. Um, When he found the house was secure, he pulled out a long serrated knife and cut one of the window screens. So earlier that evening, Elizabeth's dad had opened the window slightly to air out the house because her mom had burned some potatoes. So it left kind of a smell in the house. So he opened the window just a little bit so it could air out. Um, And her mom in the documentary talks about how basically she burned dinner because she was just so flustered with like, I just had my father's funeral and now, you know, the kids have their end of the year event. And so we're all trying to like hurry and make dinner so we can get to this event where Elizabeth is going to get these awards and she's going to play her harp. So just in the chaos of all of that, she burned dinner. Um, So this tiny opening of the window would allow Brian to push the window the rest of the way open and slide into the house. Um, And he would later say that he hesitated, but he told himself that if God wanted him to do this, he would allow it. Um, So he pulled up a patio chair so that he could reach the window, crawled inside. He waited. He didn't hear any sounds. No one had woken up. So he went upstairs and he opened the door and found Elizabeth's brother sleeping. So then he moved on until he found the room where Elizabeth slept with her younger sister, Mary Catherine. So Elizabeth woke up to a knife pressed to her neck and he told her not to make a sound. He told her to get out of bed or he would kill her and her family. So of course at this point, Elizabeth is wondering if her family is still alive. Like, is she the last one? You know, has he already harmed them? He told her to get her shoes on. And so she reached for her slippers, but he was like, no, get, get, get your tennis shoes. And so she says at that point that she knew like, oh my God, like we're leaving my house. Um, so she tried to put them on and he's like, no, carry them outside first. And he told her that he was taking her hostage for ransom. So he forced her into the hallway with the knife and reminded her not to make a noise or he would kill her family. He guided her through the house and out the patio door with the knife pressed against her back the entire time. So Elizabeth's nine-year-old sister, Mary Catherine, awoke to the sound of her sister climbing out of bed and leaving with a stranger with a knife. So she remembers hearing muffled voices and thought the man either said hostage or maybe hitchhike. She couldn't tell exactly. Um, She did hear him say the words kill and family. So at this point, obviously, she's too scared to say anything while the man is still in the room. And so after they left, she lays in bed terrified and she's just like waiting. Like she didn't know if the man was still in the house or maybe there was another man in the house who was waiting for her outside her room. Um, She didn't know if her family had already been killed. Like was the rest of her family dead? So, I mean, she's nine years old and she's like terrified. So a lot of people later would criticize why she didn't say anything to her parents immediately because maybe they could have caught him sooner. Um, But I mean, just imagine being nine years old and your older sister is kidnapped from your room. Like, you're going to be terrified. (laughs) Like, you're not going to be able to think rationally as an adult of like, I have to get help immediately. Yeah, I know in the documentary, she was like, at one point, I even like got up the courage to like, like tiptoe all the way to the door but then I thought I heard something and I ran back. Like, just terrified that, like, yeah, she's going to be hurt also. Or what she does could also hurt Elizabeth. Or maybe I'm the only one still alive. Like, that's a terrifying situation to be put in at nine years old. Like, Yeah. And cause she's thinking, like, if I walk into my parents' room, like, am I going to find them dead? Like, I don't know. Um, so finally, just before 4 a.m., and this part, like, just got to my heart, that she held her blanket over her head and ran into her parents' room. Um, So again, this is just before 4 a.m., so about two hours after Elizabeth was taken. 
Um, so Mary Catherine wakes her parents up and tells them that Elizabeth is gone. She says that a man with a gun had taken her. Um, so of course, immediately they're like, okay, like you must have had a nightmare. Like she can't really be gone. Like it's, it's okay. We'll find her. Um, so they search the whole house for Elizabeth and then they find the open window in the kitchen with a cut screen. So now they're like, oh no. Okay. We know this is real. Um, so they immediately call 911. So when Brian and Elizabeth reached the road near her house, they saw approaching headlights and Elizabeth saw the markings on the car and realized it was a police officer. So she's like, oh, thank God. Like everything's going to be okay now. And she said that Brian said, if this is the work of God, then let this police car pass without finding us. And the car passed within 10 feet of where they were standing, but it was dark at night and they were hiding in the bushes so he couldn't see them. Um, so then Brian continued forcing her up the mountain. She begged him to let her go and said that she wouldn't tell anyone. She asked him why, this, why he was doing this to her and he said that she would find out soon. And at one point she asked him if he was going to rape her and kill her to please do it there so someone would find her body. Yeah, she was like, even if I'm dead, at least maybe they'll find my body. And I know, like, in the documentary, she was just, like, she was so confused because here he is, like, kidnapping her, but then talking about God with, like, the police car. And she's like, I don't understand. Like, you're doing the most, like, ungodlike thing right now by kidnapping yeah. me. Like, what are you doing? Like, that must be so, like, like, I don't know, like, weird, too, because... It doesn't sound like her family probably wasn't into true crime and hear stories about things yeah. like this happening. Yeah. So you're just sitting there and you're just like, this can't be real. Like, it can't be. Like, it's insane. And to especially come from such a religious family and then hear someone talking about God while kidnapping you and you're like, no, this doesn't make any sense. What are you doing? Yeah. And so as they start to get further up the mountain, I guess like some moonlight eventually passes over his face and she recognizes him as, as the man that her mom gave money to in the street the previous year that did some work on their house. So now she knows who this man is. And at one point, Brian tells Elizabeth that his wife was waiting for them at the top of the mountain. Um, so eventually they reach a steep part of the mountain where they would have to crawl to get up. And so at this point, obviously he has less physical control over Elizabeth. So he tells her that if she tries to escape, that he's going to come back and kill her and her whole family. And of course, you're like, I believe this because I was just sleeping soundly in my bed in my secured house and you just took me. So obviously I'm going to believe that if I escape that you're going to have the ability to come back and kill us all. They were still climbing when the sun started to come up and Brian was afraid that someone would see them because Elizabeth was wearing bright red pajamas. So he made her change into a gray shirt. And so they finally reached a large tent and what appeared to be a camp that people had lived at for some time. And so a woman came out and he called her Hepzibah and she called him Emmanuel. And so this woman would be Wanda Barzi. So Wanda hugs Elizabeth, but Elizabeth described it as like an act of dominance and not one of warmth. Like she's like, I don't believe that she was welcoming me. It was more like you're ours now, like you're stuck here now. Like, don't do anything bad. Don't mess up. Like, yes. I will. I'm not on your side. <laughs> exactly. Um, so Wanda then took Elizabeth into the tent where there was a tub of water waiting, and she took off Elizabeth's shoes and washed her feet. Um, trigger warning for pretty much the rest of this episode for child sexual abuse, but it starts here. So just so you have a little bit of heads up. Um, Wanda then told Elizabeth to take off her clothes. Elizabeth refused and Wanda told her that she had to clean her and Elizabeth's like I took a shower the night before like is that okay and so Wanda called out of the tent and asked Brian if that was okay and he said yes but then Wanda once again told Elizabeth to take off her clothes and when she refused she said that she could take them off or she would let Brian come in and rip them off of her. 
And again, this is not that child sexual abuse is ever expected in any way, but this is a 14-year-old girl who's never even kissed a boy, who's never had any kind of encounter like this, and now all of a sudden you have two adults telling you to take off your clothes. Um, and so Wanda handed Elizabeth a white robe to slip over her head, and she eventually took off her clothes and her underwear after several more warnings that Brian's going to come in and rip them off of you if you don't do it yourself. So Brian entered the tent dressed in a similar robe and started saying vows. And Elizabeth remembered that she's like, like, I don't understand what this man is saying. Like, what is happening? He's just saying a bunch of things. And then at the end, he says that he does take Elizabeth as his wife. And Elizabeth is like, what is happening? Um, and so she yells no. And he tells her that he would duct tape her mouth if she yelled again. Um, so he forced her onto the bed and she's just like pleading with him. She tells him that she's only a child and she hasn't even gotten her period yet. And so Brian calls out to Wanda outside the tent and is like, hey, is this still okay? And she was like, yeah, it's okay. Um, Elizabeth reports that she turned on her stomach and like crossed her legs just in an attempt to stop him, but it didn't work. And I wanted to put this next part in Elizabeth's own words. Um, so in her book, she said, quote, over the next nine months, Brian David Mitchell would rape me every day, sometimes multiple times a day. He would torture me and brutalize me in ways that are impossible to describe, would starve and manipulate me like I was an animal. Many times I would think, okay, this is the bottom. Things couldn't get any worse. But whenever I began to think that way, I would quickly find out that I was wrong. So Brian left the tent after he raped Elizabeth and she slept on and off for the rest of the day. And when she woke up, there was a steel cable tied around her ankle that was anchoring her in place. So she now had like a very limited range that she could walk around this camp. And so Brian started calling her Shirjaba and told her that he had to remove any temptations. That's why he had to put the, the cable on her. And so Elizabeth just describes the shame that she felt and the fear that her family would shun her if she did ever make it home. Um, but she says the more that she sat there and she thought about it, she realized that her mom had always been there for her and that she would love and accept her no matter what. And she said that having this realization just kept her going during the months that she was held captive. And at one point she decides, okay, I have to do whatever it takes to survive. And she thinks about how much older her captors are than her and that they appear to be in bad health. So she's like, okay, all I have to do is outlive them. This is, it maybe is 20 to 30 years, but if I outlive them, I can be free one day. So I just have to do whatever it takes to survive this, which is just such a like incredible mental strength for anyone, let alone a 14 year old girl. Yeah. Especially you're being like abused and raped and tortured every single day. And you're like, all I have to do is make it like 20 years right? and I can, that's, that's insane. Yeah. Oh gosh. So back at the smart house, um, the family did call friends and relatives after hanging up with the police. And so everyone arrives at the home around four fifteen in the morning, which it's pretty quickly for everyone to get there. Cause it was right around four that, um, Mary Catherine went to her parents' room. So local groups began canvassing the neighborhood by 6 a.m. and the smart family was taken to the police station to be questioned. So by 6.30 that morning, the house was just full of people and the police are like, okay, like you guys have to leave because the crime scene is just completely contaminated at this point. So by the time they like rope off the house and don't allow anyone in, like any evidence they have is just completely gone. Um, so more than half of children abducted from middle-class families are done so by relatives or friends. So her parents, grandparents, uncles, and brothers were all considered suspects. And so they asked her questions like, what was Elizabeth like? Was she into drugs? Was she promiscuous? Had any of them ever harmed her? Did they know who had harmed her? 
Um, cadaver dogs were brought in to search the house in case the family had murdered her and her body had been inside the house. The dogs would find it. Um, so a lot of people really thought that the family was involved because in most of these cases, the family is. And so they are like the number one suspects at this point. Um, so a website was set up shortly to collect information about her whereabouts and was soon getting more than a million hits a day. And again, this is in 2002, so the internet is still fairly new. So that's a lot of internet traffic then. And over 2,000 volunteers showed up on the first day to help search for Elizabeth. And they started with a $10,000 reward, but it was soon increased to a $250,000 reward from donations that started pouring in. And the search was soon nationwide with volunteers from Montana appearing with their bloodhounds, helicopters being used to search the area, hundreds of thousands of missing posters would be distributed across the country, and people all over would wear light blue ribbons and buttons with Elizabeth's picture on them. Her abduction would be the most publicized case since Charles Lindbergh was abducted from his crib. Um, Elizabeth's father, Ed, was committed to the psychiatric ward at the local hospital three days after her abduction because he hadn't slept since then and he just, like, was having a mental breakdown. He just couldn't function. Um, so he did return home the next day, but obviously he is really, really struggling with this, as anyone would. Um, but I'm sure that that was a big thing in the media as well. Like, oh, look, her father's now in the psychiatric ward. Did he do it? Did he have something to do with it? Um... So the news released that the screen had been cut from the inside of the house and that one of the male family members didn't pass their polygraph test, which as far as the screen being cut from the inside, we know that's just blatantly false. Um, and we've talked before about how polygraph tests aren't always reliable. Um, but again, at this point, people are thinking that it's just someone in the family. I was going to say one of the investigators in the documentary was like, the problem with the polygraph in like these abduction cases is like, her father probably did feel guilty that he didn't do enough to protect her. Yeah. So, of course, he's not going to pass it because even though it's not guilt from abducting her, it's guilt because he's like, well, what did I do that didn't protect her? What, you know, all that. So, of course, he's going to fail it. Like, you should never be giving these people a polygraph. Yeah, and think about, like, what kind of mental state that you're in at that point. Like, think about the physical reactions that your body is having. Like, obviously, it's going to respond as, like, oh, something is, like happening and he's like not sleeping he's very you know in like a state of like like grieving or yeah. scared you know all that because his daughter's missing so of course he's gonna have emotions that are like all over the place <laughs> absolutely like I remember a few days after my mom died like I wear a Fitbit all the time that like tracks my heart rate and I was looking back at something in my Fitbit data I don't remember what it was but like on the day that my mom died like you can clearly see like my heart rate the moment that my mom died like it's just like skyrocket so it's like yeah obviously your body is going to have that physical reaction if like your child is missing you know so back at the camp um the first meal that elizabeth remembers eating with her captors was onions raisins and carrots mixed with mayonnaise and rolled into a into a tortilla gross yeah um, and so she begged him not to rape her again but he told her that they were man and wife now and that's what man and wife do and so the next morning, him and Wanda got naked, and they forced Elizabeth to get naked as well. And he basically was like, you have to look at me. Like, she was, like, closing her eyes, like, refusing to look at him. But, like, he knew that her family was Mormon. Like, he understood that she was very modest, that this was, like, a central part of her core values and her being. And he's like, nope, I'm going to take this away from you. Like, you have to look at me, and I'm going to sit here and look at you naked all day, too. 
And Elizabeth said that Brian never slept through the night and would leave the tent periodically and it sounded like he was doing some kind of stretching or exercise and then he would come back to the tent, but he would just do this repeatedly. So Brian explained that what he was doing was that the world was coming to an end and God had chosen him to carry out his plan. And he said that God had purged him and cleansed him and that he must take seven young virgin wives and Elizabeth was lucky to be the first. And he said the evil Antichrist would come and conquer the world and all of his wives would testify that he was the whole and chosen one. He said that God had instructed him and Wanda to sell all of their belongings and live in the country as pioneers. He said that he had to kidnap Elizabeth to save her from all the wickedness in the world. He instructed her to call him Emmanuel and Wanda Hepzibah and that she would be called Shirjibah. And since they both had middle names, Elizabeth asked if she could give herself a middle name, just like in a desperate attempt to hold on to her identity. And he wouldn't let her use her real first or middle name, so she decided on Esther, um, who was an Old Testament queen who was special to her. And she asked to be called Esther, and they obliged for a while, but then after a few months, they started calling her Shirshaba again. On the third day of her captivity, Elizabeth recognized her uncle calling her name nearby, and Brian told her that if she made a sound, that he would kill both her and her uncle. So she's literally laying there in her tent, and he's close enough that he can hear her, and there's nothing she can do about it. And the next day, they would see a helicopter flying low towards the camp, and so Brian and Wanda drag Elizabeth into the camp, and the helicopter flies over them for some time, and Elizabeth's like, oh, like, this must be it, like, they're gonna rescue me, but then they fly away, and she still for a while is thinking, okay, well, maybe they had to just go back and get the police, like, surely they saw us, and they're gonna come back and get me, but no one ever came back for her. Yeah, and... They did have a very small amount of water in the camp, so they had a small bowl to wash their hands in, but they didn't really bathe any other way and would just split the remaining water among three of them to drink, which I'm also like, I love to be clean, so this is probably another just form of torture, thinking how like gross you probably feel just yeah. like laying there. And it's Salt Lake City in June. Like you're in the desert, like it's hot. So... Yeah. Um, Mitchell had to climb all the way to the bottom of the canyon to get water for them and would usually make them wait a day or two with no water after they ran out before going to get it because I guess he's just lazy and he's like, well, I don't want to crawl down there. Y'all fine. Right. He's like, that's a long way. And he's also probably like, oh, I don't want to risk being seen. So eh, I'll just put it off as long as possible. Yeah. So a few weeks in, he agreed to take Elizabeth with him to get water, but kept the steel cable around her ankle the entire time. And Elizabeth was like, I'm going to make as many footprints in the mud as I can so someone can track me. Mm -hmm. Leaving the camp during the day allowed her to see Salt Lake City and just realize really how close she was to home. And on these now weekly excursions, he would provide Elizabeth a bar of soap and would dump a bucket of the freezing water on her so she could bathe herself. Which kind of just makes me feel like... Kind of like the grooming where it's like, look, I let you take a bath. You know, like, kind of like, see how nice I am. Like, Like, I care for you. I feed you. I give you water. Now, a couple weeks in, you can have a bath, but I'm just going to dump some cold water on you. Yeah, like, you get to come with me with the water. Yeah. And then a little over a week into her captivity, the coolers they had at camp had run out of food. And then several days passed before Mitchell went into town to get them food. And he was gone all day and didn't arrive until late that evening. So he tells them after stealing from the grocery store, he he met up with some friends in the park and drank beer all afternoon. And then he had to sleep it off before he, you know, hiked back up the mountain. Just a cool day with my friends, you know. Yeah, just hanging out, drinking beer. Oh, you're starving on top of the mountain in the Utah heat. Oh, sorry. 
sorry, I had to sleep it off, you know. Uh, he then told Elizabeth how her face was plastered all over the city and that everyone was looking for her, and he even brought a flyer to show her. Then, before they could eat the food he brought, he said they must have a sacrament and pray. So he brought out a bottle of wine and passed it to Elizabeth after he and Wanda had taken a sip. So Elizabeth refused because, again, this is very against her religion. This is an example of Brian, like, forcing her to betray, like, her religion yes. over and over again. And he knows it, too. Like, he knows what her religion is. Exactly. She did refuse, and he told her she had to drink it if she wanted any food or water. So she was starving, so she took, like, a little sip and was like, okay, um, I can just force this down. But he made her drink the whole thing and a second cup um, before she was finally allowed to eat. And he did rape her again in the tent that night as she was drunk and barely conscious. And I know in the documentary, too, she said, like, eventually, like, and I could tell, like, when she was saying it, she was like, this sounds so horrible. But she was like, eventually with the wine, it was like, it kind of just made, it, like, numbed me. So yeah. it made what I was experiencing a little bit better. So if there was alcohol and he was handing it to me, okay, like, this is just a way for me to survive. Yeah, like, eventually she's like, I stopped resisting because, I mean, one, resisting is not going to do anything. He's going to still make me do it and probably then make me drink more. But second of all okay, I can have something that at least numbs this for a little bit. Sure, why not? Yeah. So Elizabeth describes a time several weeks into her captivity when they had run out of water, and it was really hot, and Mitchell was avoiding going to get water because he knew the search efforts were still continuing for Elizabeth. And so she knew that we... She knew they had finished the final sips of water before going to bed that night, but she woke up with a cold cup of water next to her in the middle of the night. Um, and both both Brian and Wanda were asleep. And even if they had gotten the water and brought it up to the mountain, there's no way it could be this cold. And she took it as a sign from God to let her know he was still there, she wasn't alone, that he's with her through this. So on the investigation front, um, they honed in on a guy named Richard Reesey. And he was a paroled felon who had been a handyman for the Smart family. and But his wife was like, no, it's not him. He was home in bed with me, which we all know is not necessarily the best alibi. Yeah. I mean, it turns out to be true, but still not a very <laughs> reliable alibi. As far as um, the police, like, they're thinking, like, oh, we, we have him. Like, he yeah. he's already a felon. He worked for the Smart family. So Mary Catherine saw him on the news, and she was like, I don't think it's him. It's it's not him. And um, at this time, over 39,000 tips were being called in. So, back to Elizabeth. Eventually, Brian is going into town three or four days a week, but mostly returning with liquor and cigarettes, which don't have a lot of protein or nutritional values in them. Um, and so he would just force Elizabeth to drink and smoke with him. Again, just making her go against all of her religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. So, Brian tells Elizabeth she's not the first girl he planned to take as his wife, and that he'd spotted another girl on a bus and had planned to grab her, but she saw him watching her and got off the bus. So, he's like, well, that one slipped away. And then one day, he is talking about how his mother had gotten a restraining order against him for pushing her down the stairs, and he talked about where she lived, and he was mad that he wasn't allowed near there anymore. And so, Elizabeth was like, oh, my cousin Olivia lives in that neighborhood. 
um, she used to have this great swing outside that we used to swing on. And she said normally Brian got really mad if she brought up her family and was like, don't talk about them. Mm -hmm. But this time he wasn't mad and he was like, oh, okay, really? So he thinks about it and then realizes he knows like what house she's talking about. So the next day, Brian comes in the tent and tells Elizabeth that the Lord had commanded him to get his next wife and that it would be her cousin, Olivia. So now Elizabeth is just horrified at the realization that she, that she told Brian like where her cousin lived and now she's going to be kidnapped as well. And she just felt horrible about it. So Brian takes a bus and walks to Olivia's house and waits until the middle of the night. So he finds a window that's like partially open and cuts a hole in it just like he did at Elizabeth's house. But when he tries to push the window open, a decoration on the windowsill falls over. So he waits, doesn't hear anything. He's like, okay, I'll try again. Same thing happens. He knocks something over. So now he hears footsteps and someone yelling. And so Brian decides this is a sign from God that Olivia is not to be his next wife and he leaves. Which, moral of the story, always have a bunch of shit on your windowsills. So. <laughs> right? Have a lot of breakables on your windows. <laughs> um and so he never mentions Olivia again, and police really believe it was a copycat, and because they're like, oh, it's just somebody, you know, there's no way that two girls from the same family, this guy would do this. Um, but Elizabeth's brother, Charles, said maybe this means Elizabeth is alive if the same person is trying to kidnap Olivia. Um, and they knew it couldn't be Reese because he was in custody at the time of Olivia's attempted kidnapping. So I think that was really like okay, so I don't think it's him, and maybe this guy who has Elizabeth has some bigger plan here. Yeah, like, this kind of gave them a little bit of hope, because at this point, it's several months into her disappearance in, I don't know, a good statistic, but we'll say probably 95% of cases, like, the children are dead by this point. Like, it's just unheard of yeah. for you to find them alive months later. So, at least this was some kind of, like, a little bit of hope that the family could hold on to, that... Maybe she is still alive if this is the same person trying to kidnap someone else in our family. Yeah, and so one day Brian and Wanda do get into an argument because he's always going into the city and drinking and having fun. And Wanda's like, it's not fair. I want to go too. I have to sit here in the sun, in the hot. I want to drink in the park too. Right. Um, well, Wanda, if you hadn't kidnapped someone, you probably could. Exactly. <laughs> Just let her go. You can go drink in the park all you want. So they fought for a while, and Wanda even kind of ran away for a bit, but she did eventually return. And Brian caved because he wanted Wanda to stay, um, probably so that somebody was with Elizabeth while he's in the city. <laughs> but at this point, um, he, they start taking Elizabeth into the city as well, since they couldn't leave her alone and risk her escaping. So he removed all the fingernail polish that she still on her had on her fingers, and he made veils for both her and Wanda to wear to hide their faces. So he did continue to threaten that he would kill her and her whole family if she draws any attention to herself, if she tries to escape in any way. So they got some groceries and they spent the afternoon drinking rum and Cokes in the park. And which I'm wondering how Wanda did that with that veil, just like sneaking it up underneath. I know, right? It's like drink <laughs> under your veil. Just like... And, like, you know people had to be looking because, like, the pictures of them in these veils, like, just looking yeah. and, like, what is this, what are these three people doing? Like, Yeah, like, so it had to weird. have drawn so much attention to them. And not that those people would have known anything going on. No, just, like, no. what are these weirdos doing? Yeah. <laughs> so, 
when they went into a public restroom, she took one of the safety pins off her veil and scratched help into the stall, hoping that somebody would use the stall after her and just call the police. And so they went to a house party that night with a large group of people drinking and dancing. And they do say at this point, these three stuck out hardcore from everyone else at this house party. Um, And like, there's even a picture, we'll put it on Instagram, but there's a picture of them at the party where Elizabeth is wearing like a head covering and a veil and you can just see the strip of her eyes. And it's just so like chilling. Yeah. So Brian's refusing to leave And so Wanda and Elizabeth left without him. And so at this party in the documentary, one man does talk about it. And apparently a lot of people at the party thought Brian was pretty weird. And he was like drinking all their alcohol. And they're like, this dude's annoying. And the guy says he went up to Elizabeth. He did not know it was Elizabeth. But he was like, could tell she was like a younger girl. And was like, you just need to get Mm -hmm. away from this guy. Like, just get away from him. Just thinking that she was, you know, with him consenting, you know, not kidnapped. And it was really heartbreaking to watch him interview because he's just crying because he's like if I would have just I don't know if I had somehow known or somehow Mm -hmm. done something else and that's so heartbreaking because it's not his fault he wouldn't have known um and you don't want to like insert yourself too much you know yeah so they were too tired to make it all the way back to camp and they slept at a spot lower down on the mountain and then the next day they moved their camp to this new spot because it was closer to town there was water it was just a better spot so elizabeth was never tethered to a tree with the cable again as brian was now able to hold her captive just with his threats you know he's abused her so much and torn her down so much he Mm -hmm. doesn't have to physically restrain her because he's verbally abused her so much yeah So they continued going into town frequently. Elizabeth always had her veil over her face, and she was never recognized. So as winter approaches, Brian's like, all right, we're going to have to try and do something to stay warm. And he's like, we're going to move to California. So they go to Salt Lake City Public Library the next day to do some research. So they have books on California, a map spread out on the table, trying to figure out, you know, where they should go. And Brian's like, all right, San Diego's our new home. And... Then a man approaches him, shows him a badge, and says, I'm a homicide detective, and I have some questions for you. So Elizabeth does report seeing a man eyeing her before this and walking away on his cell phone. She thinks it's him who called the police, maybe recognized it could be her or something suspicious was going on here. Mm -hmm. And the detective tells Brian a few people have suspected this girl with him is a girl who recently disappeared. And at this point, Wanda does start digging her nails into Elizabeth's thigh to remind her like keep your mouth shut keep quiet do not say a word Mm -hmm. and the detective is like asking to lift her veil to see her face but brian's like oh no no this is my daughter we're strictly religious only like me and her husband can see her face no one else you'll be completely you know going against her religion and betraying her religion if you see her face So the detective continues to press and he even asks if he can convert to their religion so he can see her face and she can still maintain her purity. And Brian asks the detective if this girl was the one they were looking for, why would she just sit here and not say anything? Like, wouldn't she be like, hey, yeah, it's me, it's me. So after about 15 minutes of questioning who they are and what their religion believes, the detective does leave. And so Brian was very proud of himself on this one, that he had fooled this homicide detective. He'd gotten away with it. All that. 
So. And Elizabeth does mention that, um, you know, this is a little over a year after 9-11, and so during that year, you know, people who wore turbans or face coverings, you know, were basically persecuted for their religion, and so then it kind of went to, like, the complete opposite, where it's like anyone was afraid to question them at all because they didn't want to come off that way. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons that she thinks that they were kind of able to get away with that ruse for so long because people were afraid of coming off as discriminating against them because of their religion during this time in the United States. Yeah. And so after this, Brian's like, all right, Wanda, Elizabeth, you cannot keep coming to the city. You have to stay in the camp. We can't be risk being seen again. And so Brian is gone often. So Elizabeth was just glad because she wasn't being raped at these times, but she was still with Wanda and Elizabeth describes Wanda in her book as, quote, I want to be clear. I never developed any kind of affection for Barzi. She was a monster, and I knew that. She never showed me a single moment of kindness. She never demonstrated a single act of compassion or understanding towards me. If Mitchell was the devil, then she was his sneering sidekick. In some ways, I think she was even worse. She was a woman. She was a mother. She knew what I was going through. So, again, like Wanda's kids said, She's a monster. Like, she's not some poor woman who's being brainwashed or a victim. She was an active participant in this whole thing. Yes. So, several months after the kidnapping, Mary Catherine suddenly thinks of a man that could have kidnapped Elizabeth. And she tells her parents she thinks it could have been the man they met downtown who came and worked on their roof. So, she's like, okay, I'm thinking it's this guy. Mm-hmm. Um And I know the police really wanted to keep it hush-hush because they didn't want to tip off Brian that they were kind of maybe getting on his trail Mm -hmm. or maybe kind of knew. So then in September, um, Brian, Wanda, and Elizabeth hike down to the Greyhound station with the items needed to make another camp, and they catch a bus to San Diego. And they found a place to set up their camp and located the nearby grocery store, and then they did notice... The church would also leave leftover bread outside. And Brian found some prickly pears for them to eat near their camp. So one night, Brian forced Elizabeth to drink so much that she threw up and passed out. And she awoke the next morning face down in her own vomit, which is just so sad. And such like a, just like waking up and just like seeing this and just being like, oh, this is my life now. You know, like it's horrible. Like, again, this is September, and she was taken in June, so it's just, like, devastating. And on Thanksgiving, they were able to get a meal at a buffet that was open for the homeless. And then in December, Brian decided the time had come for him to find another wife. He said she must be Mormon, and so he started attending the LDS churches in the area until he found a girl he believed was meant to be with them. He started planning... On January 4th, he did set out to kidnap her. So he slid open an unlocked door and waited for sounds, and then he heard snoring and realized her father was asleep in that room. So he would never be able to get past him and get his daughter, and he realized it's another test from God, it's another sign from God, and he left. So he keeps just saying, he's just using God as an excuse of like, my plan didn't work out, God didn't want me to do it. Yeah, God changed his mind. This is clearly not a man of God at all here. Yes. Brian Mitchell is not a man of God. No. So Brian found another mountain for them to move their camp to. And as they crawled under some 
boulders into a cave, they found a man's items he had left behind, including a pornography magazine. So Brian then forced Elizabeth to look at the magazine before raping her. In October, the media released the information that they were seeking a homeless man named Emmanuel who'd been seen working in Salt Lake City. So Brian David Mitchell's sister calls in and she's like, I think my brother's the man you're looking for, which good for her. Yeah. Call your brother in. (laughs) If you ever see something, you're like, that looks like my brother. And he probably kidnapped someone. Call it in. They, uh, they find video surveillance of Brian stealing $50 worth of beer and a few other things from an Albertsons in August. So they put out flyers saying they're seeking this man for questioning, but some FBI agents are a little hesitant to release his picture And eventually, they run his picture on America's Most Wanted. So, now it's out everywhere. And Brian's ex-wife, Debbie, calls the tip line and says this man goes by Emmanuel. He lives on the streets. He's super manipulative. And he raped her daughter while we were married. So, they're like, ooh, uh (laughs) oh. All right, thank you. This guy's not good. They're like, this Um, is looking more likely. (laughs) Yeah, so... She tells them that he has a wife named Wanda Barzi, and Wanda's children came forward and talked about how horrible Brian and Wanda were, and they receive a tip that he'd been at a super salads. So they speak with all of the super salads in the area, and one of the employees says they'd recently been in there and had a third person with them, a young girl. So now everything's coming together, and they're like, oh, crap, I mm-hmm. think I know what's happening. And I think at this point, too, they're like, oh, crap, Elizabeth could still be alive. Yeah. We could be looking for her, like, her still alive and not necessarily just trying to find her body. Yeah, which is probably what they thought they were doing at that point so many months after she was kidnapped. It's so unlikely that she would be alive. And then now this tip that three of them have been seen at the super salads, they're like, oh, shit, like, she may be alive. Yeah. So in February, Brian and Wanda got into a big argument and Brian left. And they'd eaten all the food and water that they had and three days went by and Brian still hadn't returned and Elizabeth and Wanda hadn't had anything to drink since he left and Elizabeth said she even was like digging a piece of grapefruit peel out of the hole their feces was in being like maybe there's something in here that can keep me alive a little bit longer and that night It started to rain, and they pulled out a tarp and every container they had to catch the rain. So they now had water, so, you know, you can survive without food a little bit longer than without water, but Brian's still gone. There's still no food. Like, obviously, once you're coming up on that three-day mark with no water, it's like, this is literally life or death. And so that was another thing that Elizabeth describes that she feels like was an act of God, that it was like, you're not going to survive without this water, so let me send you all this water, especially in San Diego, where it doesn't rain very often, so it's not like, oh, you know, it's just storms come in all the time, like, not really, so this was like a huge deal. Yeah, and so eight days after he had left, he finally returns with some sides from KFC that were getting thrown out. The day he left, he had stolen some beers in a convenience store, and after asking a lady shopping for some pills and her saying no... He grabbed her purse and took the prescription pills from inside and ran away. So then, just on his continuing this, he throws a brick through a church window and crawls inside to sleep when the combination of the alcohol and pills hit. So he was arrested, and he was released a week later on probation after telling the judge he'd broken his 22-year sobriety that night and had just made a mistake. And... 
one night a helicopter does fly low over them and Brian's getting really nervous and is like, okay, it's time for us to leave California. I think, you know, too much has happened. I've been arrested, like all this. So Brian and Wanda are like, where should we go? Try to figure it out. And Elizabeth tells Mitchell that God has spoken to her and says they should return to Utah. And she's like, will you just please pray about it? Will you just, you know, you're God's prophet. God will answer you if you ask him. Um, And so Brian is like super excited that God's starting to speak to her. And after praying about it, he decides, you know what, you're right. Let's return to Utah. And Elizabeth was really using his like preachings and everything he said to her, like kind of against him, kind of being like, Mm -hmm. well, if I mention God, I mention he's talking and, oh, I'm your wife, you know, God, all of this stuff, trying to get back to Utah, back to close to her family. Kind of trying to be like, okay, look, I finally accepted that this is our life and we're going to be together and God's spoken to me, but really, I mean, he's, he's going to tell you exactly what to do. So like playing to his ego of like, oh, you're God's prophet. And so he's definitely going to speak to you. So yeah. she's manipulating the manipulator. And like, clearly God isn't actually speaking to him since Brian is a piece of shit. And she's yeah. like, if I can just plant this in his mind, he can be like, oh yeah, that's what God said. Yeah. So, as they discuss how they're going to get there, Elizabeth tells them she feels they should hitchhike because she's never experienced that. And she has to descend below all things so that she can rise above them. So, she's trying to, again, using his preachings against him. Yeah, because that's something that he would say to them all the time when it came to, you know, being starved or not having enough water or anything. Is like, oh, well, we can never reach all of these people if we've never been in their position. So, kind of playing, again, to his manipulations. Yeah, and so he's kind of hesitant, but he agrees. Um, they go to a dollar store, and they buy Elizabeth a gray wig and some sunglasses for the journey. And so the journey to Salt Lake City took many days of walking and hitching rides from multiple people. Uh, at one point, they're eating in bur- a Burger King in Las Vegas, and people are eyeing them suspiciously, probably because she has a dollar store wig. Um, a gray wig, too? Like, a young girl wearing yeah. a gray wig? Yeah, it's... Not your smartest choice there. Uh, When they leave, a police car pulls up and questions them. After Mitchell tells them this is his wife and daughter and they're ministers of Christ, the cops let them go. So, on March 13, 2003, they're on a bus heading to their original camp when a man questions them about where they're going. So, Brian again is like, oh, we're ministers. Um, And so, the guy's like, oh, it's like, what do you believe? And, you know, is this, like, gray wig she's wearing designed to teach her humility? You know, is this, like, part of it? Because clearly this young girl's hair is not gray. Yeah. And this is a dollar store wig. We can tell it's fake hair. (laughs) Yeah. So, Brian's like, oh, nope. And they get off at the next stop. And he says, you know, once we're back at camp, Elizabeth, you are never leaving again. We're staying there. So, when they're getting close to Salt Lake City, they stop and steal some items from Walmart. So, police receive calls from a couple of different people that they see Brian and the two women and recognize him from America's Most Wanted. So, as they're walking down the street leaving Walmart, several police cars pull up next to them. And so, they go out and they're like, Brian, we need to talk to you. We need to see your ID. And he's like, we're ministers. We don't have ID. Which... I think you can still have an ID as a minister. I don't know. I'm pretty sure you can. (laughs) Don't know, but I think you can. Um, They ask where he's going, and he says again, you know, we're ministers. We're from California. We're going to Salt Lake City. 
and the police officer turns to Elizabeth and asks her name, and Mitchell says her name is Sherjaba. And the police are like, okay, thanks, Brian. Uh, Elizabeth, <laughs> right. what is she, I need you to say your name. And Elizabeth just remains silent. And she kind of talks about this in the documentary of just, like, these people have said time and time again, like, she is going to be killed and her family is going to be killed if she says anything. And mm-hmm. she's told time and time again, like, well, and there's so many opportunities for her to be saved, you know, at the yeah. party, with the homicide detective, all these cops. And she's constantly put back with Brian and Wanda. And she's like, if I say something, it's going to make it worse. I'm, I'm just too terrified to speak. I want to get away from him, but I'm too terrified. Because she's like, if I say, yes, I'm Elizabeth, and they don't believe me, or something happens, and, like, they send me back with him, what am I going to endure then? Like, I can't risk yeah. that. So the police speak amongst themselves, um, and they're like, okay, we gotta got to get her to the side. Maybe she'll talk more. And... Elizabeth had been coached to say she's from Florida and had been living with her mother and recently moved to be with her father and stepmother. And the police tell her they don't believe her and they show her a picture of the missing poster. I'm like, we think this is you. And she's like, no, no, it's not me. And she continues to deny it for about 45 minutes. Again, because she just honestly doesn't believe the police are going to believe her Mm -hmm. and that she'll be released back to her captors. They're going to kill her. They're going to kill her family. Um... So eventually the police do handcuff her and put her in the back of a police car to take her to the station. And Mitch and Brian and Wanda are cuffed and taken in a separate car. And they continue to ask her, like, are you Elizabeth Smart? Are you, you know, are you her? And she eventually does say, thou saith. So Elizabeth said this is the way they'd spoken for nine months. Everything was like they, thou, whatever. Mm -hmm. And she's like, if I say this and I can tell them it's me. But if Brian overhears it, they might not know, like, what they're asking me and that I'm just, like, answering. Mm-hmm. And, again, this just speaks to how terrified that she was, that she's like, I want to try to let them know that this is me, but I'm still so afraid that Brian's going to hear and I'm going to get in trouble for it later. Yeah. So Elizabeth's taken to the police station, and she's like, okay, yes, I'm Elizabeth Smart. Now that I'm separated, now that I'm safe. Um, she sits by herself in a room at the police station for a while, and then her dad appears. And her dad obviously is like, I cannot believe it's you. I can't believe you're alive. Um, And she's like, it's me. I'm okay. Like, I'm here. So Mm -hmm. he calls her mom and tells her it's her. She's alive. She's okay. So her mom does meet them at police headquarters. So the police try to interview her alone. But her dad asks, you know, can you just do this later so we can have, like, a little reuniting Mm -hmm. here? And... Her oldest brother says the last thing he said to her was teasing her over something stupid and how he hadn't stopped thinking about it. And he said, I'll never tell her goodbye without telling her, like, I love her again. You know, I'm, I'm, I mean, you have to think about that too. Like all the time when, even if it's just in shows and people are like dying in shows and they're like, oh my gosh, the last thing I said was something stupid, you Mm -hmm. know, like, oh, I can't believe we fought, you know, all this stuff. And you're just like now is really put that in perspective and he has the opportunity to like every time I say goodbye I'm gonna say I love you and he's continued to do this yeah so she's taken to the hospital for an exam and she's finally able to go home so she finds her room exactly as it was the night she left it even the clothes she'd planned to wear the next day were still laid out her mom had left everything exactly the same um and her mom asks what what do you want to do and she's I want a bubble bath which I would too after that 
her parents are trying to get her to sleep like in their room for the night or like have a big sleepover everyone together and she's like no I just want to sleep in my bed I want to sleep in my own bed please and she says she woke up several times during the night to them just standing over her just watching her which I would do if that was my kid I'd be like you're never out of my sight again Uh, yeah (laughs) so Elizabeth is shocked the next day at the number of teddy bears and flowers that arrive at her house from strangers and the media is outside her house just trying to get a glimpse of her um i think it just kind of puts for her she was like thinking that no one thought about her except her family and now she's like Mm -hmm. oh the whole nation was looking for me right that's awesome (laughs) so brian david mitchell and wanda barzi finally do go to trial eight years after elizabeth is rescued eight years (laughs) y'all so insane During that time, Elizabeth finished high school, and she graduated from BYU with a degree in music performance. She spent a lot of time just enjoying life with her her family and her friends. She also said in the documentary that she thinks therapy is amazing, but she never went because she had such Mm -hmm. a good family she could talk to, which I do not understand how you continue to have a mostly normal life after this. That is some incredible strength. She's an amazing person. And I also like how she acknowledged the fact that she does have such a strong support system that was able to provide that role for her and that not everyone has it. Like, she wasn't, like, talking bad about therapy or acting like she was above therapy or anything like that. She was just like, this personally wasn't something that I sought out that I felt that I needed, but it's a wonderful thing. So I really like the way that she kind of presented it. Yeah, she was, like, talking to my parents, like, was my therapy, like, I had them, and she... She was even just like, if someone, this has happened to someone and they don't have that, like, I can't even imagine it, you know, like, I can't imagine. So she did end up up dating, like, a few boys. She'd go skiing and camping. She loved riding her horse and picnics. And when the trial began, Elizabeth was serving an 18-month volunteer mission for her church in Paris, and she had to come home for the trial, which is just infuriating because it did take eight years, and now you're trying to continue your life and having to, like, come back for this trial. You have to put everything on hold for these people that you already had to put your life on hold for for nine months. Yeah, so Brian and Wanda both had competency hearings prior to the trial. And even, like, the prosecution wanted this because they're like, we do not need a mistrial on our hands. Yes. So they were both found incompetent and sent to mental hospitals until they were found competent enough to stand trial. So Wanda pled guilty to kidnapping and transportation of a minor across state lines to engage in sexual activity, and she was sentenced to 15 years. And during his trial, Brian was routinely removed from the courtroom for loudly singing hymns. Um, I know they talk about it some, like, with Wanda's testimony, how he would just, like, walk in singing, like, Mm Oh, Come Here, Emmanuel, and all this other just weird stuff. Yeah. (laughs) At one point, he did collapse on the floor, and medics came in, and they're like, there's nothing wrong with this guy. Like, there's nothing wrong. And, like, poor Elizabeth is just, like, sitting there having to, like, watch all of this, and she's like, can we just get on with this trial? Like, you've already taken enough of my time. Like, can you please just stop it? So, Brian was found guilty of kidnapping and transportation of a minor across state lines to engage in sexual activity and sentenced to life in prison. Because he was tried and sentenced in a federal court and sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole, there was no trial for the state charges, which included aggravated sexual assault, aggravated burglary, and aggravated attempted kidnapping of Olivia, Elizabeth's cousin. So they just kind of kept that and like, all right, well, if anything happens, we got you back here. Don't worry. (laughs) 
since he was charged with federal kidnapping because he took her. So basically, if he hadn't taken her to California, his charges would have been much less. But because he kidnapped her to California and crossed state lines, it then became a federal charge, a federal trial, which is how he ended up in prison for life with no possibility of parole. And they didn't even need to go through um, charging him for the other charges because he's never getting out. Yeah, so Elizabeth did meet her husband, Matthew, through the group she was going on the missionary trip to Paris with. So he was from Scotland and didn't even know anything about her story. Um, And so after they're friends, and so she got to tell him about it, not like, she didn't have to worry, like, oh, he's just like, he's talking to me because I'm Elizabeth Smart, you know, any of that. So in the LDS church, women serve for 18 months on a mission and men serve for two years. So before he left, he was like, hey, can I go on a date with you in two years? And they were married in February of 2012, and now they have three children. In 2011, Elizabeth did start the Elizabeth Spart Foundation, which provides recovery, advocacy, and prevention service resources for victims and families. I wish this is where I could end the story and say Brian and Wanda are rotting away in prison forever, but this is 2020 and good things don't happen. So (laughs) here I am again, ruining your day. (laughs) So, Wanda has been released from prison. So, basically, Wanda was released from federal prison in 2016 for the Elizabeth Smart charges, but she still faced up to 15 years in state prison time due to the attempted abduction of Elizabeth's cousin, Olivia. So, her attorney asked for the time in federal prison to count as credit time served, but the Utah Board of Pardons and Parole denied it, saying, no, your sentence is going to be up in 2024. Then suddenly, out of nowhere, they change their minds and say, okay, yeah, it does count. You're going to be released on September 19th of 2019. So, the parole board said after a legal review of her time served, it discovered that part of her time spent in federal prison should count towards her state sentence, making her eligible for release. Um, She is going to be under federal supervision for five years. Her niece, Tina Mace, says she's still horrified by what her aunt did, and she's like, I'm disgusted she's being released. Pretty sure Wanda's kids are disgusted, and Tina's like, no one in the family is going to take her in. Yeah. So people are asking, like, well, where is Wanda going to live? And they're like, we found her a place to live. She's not going to be homeless. But they wouldn't comment if it was, like, a private residence or a facility. They just wouldn't really say anything. So part of her agreement does mean that Wanda is going to seek mental health treatment and have no contact with the Smart family. And she also agreed to not go anywhere near where the Smart family might frequent. Even if there's a chance they could be there, she's not allowed. So violating any of these conditions will mean she goes immediately back to jail. The length of that really depends on like which violation she commits. Mm -hmm. So Elizabeth Smart does believe in forgiveness, but she does not believe Wanda has been rehabilitated to the point of release. And Elizabeth said that she is going to be taking some precautions, but she said, I lived in fear for nine months with them and I'm not going to continue to. So Wanda is currently out and yeah, but Brian will be behind bars forever. Wish Wanda was, but this is where we are. And that is the crazy story of Elizabeth Smart. Yes, she is such an incredible person. Like, The things that she went through and was able to overcome and the ways that she has been able to 
make that part of her life's work. Um, I mean, she's incredible. If you guys are not following her on Instagram, you should because I just love all of her posts and she's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing how much just like strength and how she's able to just like under like not be jaded by the world and understand like this was one bad person who did a bad thing and it's just really truly amazing. It really is. Yeah. It is. So, Courtney, what is your perk of the week? Okay, my perk of the week is going to be kind of like two things, but also one thing. (laughs) Anyway, so I've been scrolling Facebook a lot, and as one does. Haven't we all? As one does in 2020. So there's two people who I've been watching their videos, like, nonstop. So one is Brad Mondo, and I love his videos where he'll, he's a hairstylist in, I think, New York City. But he's been watching videos of people, like, failing at bleaching their own hair or people doing, like, crazy things with their hair. And he just reacts to it. And it's just so funny. He's, like, such, like, a funny and vibrant. And it's just so fun to watch him, even if it's him just sitting there being like, girl, you are destroying your hair. (laughs) (laughs) What are you doing? That has been fun. It's been fun to watch those. It's been a good, like, palate cleanser, a good, like, uh, laugh in this time of... COVID. And the second is one a little bit more true crimey. Her name is Bailey Sarian. And so she does the makeup and murder. So she'll sit there and put makeup on while she's telling about a murder. And I love it because it's like my two favorite things. (laughs) It's just true crime (laughs) and makeup. And it's so fun to see like all the things she does while she's telling a story. And she just, she has a really good personality as well. I like hearing her talk. So yeah, that is what I've been doing is watching a lot of those videos. So yeah. And I also feel like she is just so talented because Courtney and I have notes in front of us and are only telling a story and we mess up our words all the time. And she's just like flawlessly tells her story (laughs) while also doing her makeup at the same time. And I'm like, I'm just sitting here and I can't even talk. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's super impressive. It's super, it's super cool to watch too. So yeah, Jacqueline, what is your perk of the week? So my perk of the week is the Dateline podcast. Um, I can't remember if I mentioned it in a regular episode or if it was one of our bonus episodes, um, but Dateline was my like introduction to true crime like as a child. like My mom would always watch Dateline, but I haven't really watched it much as an adult. And so now that they have this podcast, which is like a couple years old, but I'm always late to everything, so <laughs> here I am now. Um, but I'm pretty sure it's just like straight audio clips from the TV show. Um, because like they'll say like, oh, and like next Friday on Dateline, or they'll reference like something that you saw versus like heard. So I'm pretty sure they just took the audio, but it's fantastic because I just love podcasts in general and I don't like sit down and watch a lot of TV so I can listen to the stories while I'm like cleaning the house or walking the dogs or whatever, but I still get that like dateline experience. Mm -hmm. So that's been my perk of the week this week. Yeah. I haven't listened to it yet. I probably should, but we'll see how it goes. (laughs) Also getting lots of good episode ideas. So there's that. (laughs) I know. I was thinking that with like the makeup and murder. I was like, Ooh, okay. Let's see. Write down. That's a good one. I'll add that one one. to the list. That's a good one. (laughs) So um don't forget if you guys have one that you want us to add to our list um you can dm us on instagram at caffeinated crimes pod or you can email us at caffeinated crimes pod at gmail um and we are still running our contest so once we get 100 followers on instagram 50 reviews on apple podcasts we will draw a name from each one to win a pin a sticker and a 10 dollar coffee gift card to a coffee shop of your choice Um, So make sure that you go and do those things. And 
If you feel so inclined, you can go to patreon.com slash caffeinatedcrimes where we have some bonus content, we do some Q&A sessions, some Google Hangouts, we have some free goodies. Um, so check us out over there if you are willing and able to. Yeah, and go have a cup of coffee. And don't commit a crime.